Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. We're excited about today's discussion, major topic that's been in the news, and that is NYCHA. We're going to dig into both what NYCHA needs and where it needs to go. Just a reminder before we get going, if you missed any of our recent episodes, we recently had a really good discussion with the city's health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett, and a variety of other good episodes. So check your podcast feeds for What's the Data Point for past episodes or find past episodes at the CBC website or the Gotham Gazette website. And give us feedback if you have it. I'm on Twitter at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Doulis, and you can find Gotham Gazette and CBC, of course, as well. So for today, we are talking about NYCHA's recently released physical needs assessment and the CBC response with some interesting analysis and key recommendations. And we're talking today with CBC Senior Research Associate Sean Campion. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. And to start us off, here's Maria with today's data point. $31.8 billion, the amount required to repair NYCHA's 176,000 public housing units and bring the buildings, apartments, mechanical systems, and sites to a good and functioning working order over the next five years. On average, that means $181,000 per unit. The $32 billion figure comes from an engineering review that NYCHA is required to conduct every four to five years. The last time NYCHA did this needs assessment was 2011, and at that time, the investment need was pegged at $17 billion. So in few short years, that has almost doubled. That public housing is in disrepair is not news, but the extent of the deterioration in the system, $32 billion, is shocking, and the needs far exceed the resources available. We at CBC have been thinking about this for the last few months and released a report recently with recommendations for a path forward for NYCHA. It's called Stabilizing the Foundation, Transforming NYCHA to Address Its Capital Needs, and of course, it's available on our website. So the report's author, Sean Campion, is here to tell our audience how NYCHA got into such a deep hole and how it can start to dig out. And I just want to start this discussion by saying there are no easy answers here, and there's also no public housing fairy who's just going to come dump some cash on NYCHA overnight, right? So with that, let's start the discussion. So the number is almost hard to wrap one's head around. I mean, we're talking basically about $32 billion in need for NYCHA. And as your report gets at, this basically necessitates some really different thinking. Before we get to some of those recommendations, though, just sort of zoom out for us, a physical needs assessments, What's the basics? How's it done? What's in it? What does it mean? Sure. So the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which sort of oversees public housing across the country, um, encourages all of its housing authorities to periodically do these physical needs assessments. And what they do is, for most housing authorities, they'll go out and hire an engineering firm like NYCHA did. They'll assess the conditions of um, all the buildings, the mechanical systems, the grounds, um, and figure out sort of the condition, the underlying condition of all these different components. And they ask me when those components will need to be repaired or replaced uh, and what that cost will be based on the cost of comparable projects throughout, in this case, New York City. Um, and then they sort of bucket those into short-term needs, which is sort of the five-year figure, which is $32 billion that now NYCHA needs to invest over the next five years to bring its developments back to a state of good repair. And then longer-term needs that will address, need to be addressed you know, six to 20 years into the future so that housing authorities have some sense that they can develop long-range capital plans and prioritize what they invest in and sort of what it's going to cost over time. 
So this number that we're talking about is really if they were going to try to get things into a state of good repair in five years. Right. So a major, major infusion of resources yes. would be needed. Yes. And compared to long-term, if some of these if some of this investment is not made, we're talking about basically buildings that will not be habitable. Right. And we, you know, Sean has estimated some of this, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, as we mentioned at the top of the program, just four years ago, the needs were estimated to be 17 billion. Now they're basically double, right? 32. And if you continue on that trajectory, tell the audience, you know, how you've modeled that, what that means for units at risk. Right. So it's essentially what's happened over the last five or six years since the last time the NYCHA NYCHA did this need assessment uh, was that the needs that went unaddressed in the last plan continued to deteriorate, and some of the needs that were longer-term needs in 2011 are now due to be repaired within the next five years. So if NYCHA's developments continue to deteriorate the same pace without getting any additional funding beyond the funding that it had available to it since 2011, um, at this point probably um, 90% of the developments will have sort of reached the level at which point it may or may not be cost-effective to repair them. Um, today, there's sort of only about 8,000 of the 175,000 or so nitrogens are at that level. So you can see there's sort of like at the current rate of deterioration, we're sort of at this point now where it's, it still makes sense to invest. But increasingly, if we wait and we don't you know, identify more resources, financial resources to bring in, efficiencies to reduce the need, then obviously it's going to reach a point where you know, no longer is cost-effective to invest in many nature developments. And as much as there's some people, political leaders, others who don't want to even think about that mm -hmm. and talk about that, uh, it seems to be necessary as part of the conversation at this point. I mean, I know in an interview that I was part of with uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, he even was talking about we might need to, you know, he was very stressing no displacement, you know, we're not kicking tenants out of public housing, mm -hmm. this that, but he was saying, you know, we might need to really think about knocking buildings down and rebuilding and, you know, some of these things that have seemed like maybe far off possibilities, but we're talking about such extreme needs here. I mean, and I think I'll put it in even more stark terms, right? Either we can get ahead of that and start thinking about how to address the needs right now in new and maybe dramatic ways, options that were previously off the table for these political reasons, or we will reach the point where, you know, if we're not thinking about how we're going to tear down the units strategically in some places and replace them and rehouse those folks, the roofs would just start falling in on their own, right? The buildings would just literally already, crumble yeah. on their own. So either we think about it and get ahead of it, or uh, we're going to reach this really, really bad point where then we will have even fewer solutions and, and options available mm -hmm. to us to address the public housing issue. So as we, I some of the recommendations that CBC is making before we get to that, this $32 billion, talk a little bit more about what that really is and looks like, what are the biggest areas of needs, what are the big buckets here of falling apart infrastructure, crumbling infrastructure. Yeah, so one of, one of the goals in our report is sort of $32 billion is a large and imposing number. It's almost... It, it's almost unfathomable to come up with sort of how you begin addressing this need. So what we wanted to do was break it down into its component parts. So I think there are two different ways to sort of break down the $32 billion to make it more comprehensible and to start looking at, okay, how do we get about addressing this issue? Um, one of them is to sort of break it down by the different types of need. Um, so about three-quarters of that $32 billion um, 
are for repairs to apartment interiors or building exteriors. So apartment interiors includes everything sort of within the four walls of a unit. So it's not just floors and ceilings, but it's also um, you know, renovating kitchens, renovating bathrooms, getting to the pipes behind the wall, and sort of all those component parts that are sort of internal to someone's unit. Um, building exteriors are you know, roofs, brickwork, windows, you know, all components that eventually need to be replaced or upgraded over time. Um, and that sort of makes up the bulk of the need. Sort of beyond that, sort of the remaining one quarter of the need um, goes for things like mechanical systems, so that's heat, hot water, steam piping, gas lines coming in. Um, it's also elevators, um, electrical needs, um, and also sort of grounds and everything that's external. So the playgrounds, parking lots, um, you know, different utility distribution systems, things that are outside of the buildings as well. So I think it's also important for people to understand the kind of interplay between the exteriors and the parts. Right. So I think one thing that NYCHA has done over the last few years is sort of like knowing that they didn't have the financial resources and to address their needs, and their needs vastly outstripped the, you know, the traditional funding sources that public housing authorities use to make their repair work, what they've decided to do is to first prioritize investment in exteriors. The idea that if you can seal a building, repair its roof, repair its windows, stop the sources of water infiltration that cause things like leaks, uh, peeling paint, holes in ceilings and floors and walls. Um, then you, once, you're, once you seal that envelope, you can then start to get in and address some of the interior issues. You can get at the plumbing issues and the mechanical systems that are failing. You can go in and start making apartment repairs um, that you otherwise wouldn't make sense to do if you don't sort of stop the most serious causes of the deterioration and the decay. Right, or you do them, but you'll be back there a few months later doing the same thing without sealing the right. building exterior. So it's sort of a strategic approach saying, like, first you, you know, address the root causes of the problem, and then you start getting at some of the more underlying issues as well. And that is generally what NYCHA has done? Yes, especially in the last few years. I think in the past, they haven't always had a strategic approach. They sort of, there's a tension between sort of doing piecemeal repair work where you go out and sort of do small components in every development where you start focusing on root causes, sort of both system-wide, things like, you know, focusing first on roofs system-wide, or sort of going in holistically in buildings and sort of going to, you know, doing roofs and then doing mechanical systems and then uh, doing apartments, sort of like an, uh, you know, an order of priorities. Sure. Um, and I think there's been much more focus on sort of strategically using its limited funds to keep the system going. Right. I think this is also an agency that's kind of had to contend with, um, political pressure to send capital dollars to projects or to systems in a very reactive way, mm -hmm. right? So there would be a death and an elevator in a building, and then the political priority became elevators, right? And now we have lead. Before that, we had other things. So there's always this pressure to kind of focus on the scandal of the moment um, instead of stepping back and saying, okay, you know, how are we going to best and most effectively use the dollars we've had? And I think in the last recent capital plan, at least, NYCHA was making an attempt to do that by saying, you know, we are going to be sort of, it's going to be Sisyphus pushing the boulder up a rock, trying to get to the apartment issues that affect the tenant quality of life if we don't start doing something about the exterior of these buildings. Um, so, but part of what's happened, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's so many inefficiencies. Mm -hmm. There's so many problems with both NYCHA management, there's work rule issues, and there's just not enough money to do it that it's a recipe for disaster and for this ballooning needs assessment, right? I mean, that's where you get 
you just even if you take a step back and you do, do things a little more strategically, you still can't catch up with the need. You're still wasting the resources you do have. Uh, well, you're not wasting, but they're not <laughs> best used. I mean, the bottom line is you're right, right? Which you're not getting you the most bang out of the buck. That's right, and you don't have enough to be able to get to the full need. And even you know the recommendations that we've put forth in this report, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, I think take a giant step forward and still don't solve the whole problem, um, which means, again, there needs to be a serious conversation where uh, the stakeholders step back and say, okay, we've got to take some dramatic steps now, but we need to start thinking about this, the long term and the future of NYCHA and will NYCHA exist in 50 years. One of the first things, you know, I thought about with this $32 billion number is, you know, that's right around the same five, you know, if you put that as a five-year number, that's right around the same thing as an MTA capital plan. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a third of the city's operating budget for a year. You know, I mean, this is, these are immense numbers that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So as we move into solutions and recommendations um is there anything else you wanted to mention about the sort of need and how we got there and the and the sources of of sources of funding um because you know as we know the federal government has not been really uh, mm-hmm. uh putting money on the table yeah. um i think one other um important way to sort of slice nice need sort of sets up um discussion of funding um is that if you break it down sort of the individual unit level or the development level, you start to see that there are differences even within the NYCHA system. Um, so we also broke down the needs assessment by um, looking at different types of developments. And one thing that we found is that the developments that have the largest needs are NYCHA's smallest developments. Yeah, that was very interesting. You have some really good yeah. graphs and infographics in the report, so yeah. folks should definitely take a look at that because it is very digestible, um, which is helpful when yeah. you're doing something this complex. And most of those developments were developments that NYCHA picked up over the years through tax court foreclosures and buildings were taken back by the city for private landlords and transferred to NYCHA. They generally came in in relatively poor condition to NYCHA and continue to be in poor condition today and an efficient advantage. Um, on the flip side, NYCHA's large developments were also have some, some um, substantial capital needs as well. Um, you know, they're larger and more complicated. They have custom mechanical systems. Um, you know, more roofs, you know, more walls. Everything is larger units. Everything is more expensive than those two. Um, and conversely, it's also its senior developments are also in relatively decent shape. Um, so there's that. I think it's important to think that NYCHA is not a monolith. Mm-hmm. Not everything is the same. Some developments are in pretty good shape. Some are in pretty terrible shape. Um, and the, you essentially need a whole menu of options to be able to sort of get at a system that's the size of NYCHA. I mean, it's a hundred and 75,000 units, it's home to 400,000 residents, and it's by far the largest housing authority in the country. Um, and sort of, you know, segueing to the you know, issue of federal funding, um, you know, it's, it's a public housing subsidy stream that is not necessarily meant to deal with a system of NYCHA size and a system of NYCHA's age and condition. Yeah, I mean, Ben talked about the graphs, and we have many of them in the report, but one that is just the most striking is the comparison of NYCHA to the other public housing authorities in in the country. I mean, in terms of size and scale, it is far beyond anything else in the country. And then the other thing that's notable about that is that NYCHA has retained this public housing stock over time, even as these public housing subsidies have decreased, which has prompted uh, public housing authorities in other cities to shed the stock. 
um, and rethink about how they provide affordable housing. And so, I, I don't know, I don't mean to spring this on you, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but NYCHA has the next generation NYCHA plan that was developed in the first couple of years of the de Blasio administration with the first and longtime uh, chair of NYCHA, um, who's no longer there, but, but this was developed, wide-ranging plan. Now that you're looking at this new needs assessment, you're putting forward these recommendations, is that sort of saying next-gen NYCHA needs to basically just be thrown out and rethought? There's a bunch of elements in it that are still very relevant. How does, before we get into what you're recommending, how does it relate to sort of this big plan they've already put out there? So I think one of the root causes of why NYCHA needs have grown so significantly um, is that they really didn't push far enough on a lot of the ideas that were originally identified in the next generation NYCHA plan. Um, at this point, back in 2005 when they started to, or 2015 when they started to develop the plan, um, it identified a lot of the root causes that we identify in our report. And those root causes were true then and they're true today. Um, you know, it's, they recognize that federal funding has been falling, so they've received less in 2017 than they did in 2002 from the federal government, even though their needs are growing almost fivefold over that period. And construction costs are up 4% a year, year over year. Um, you know, they, they need to start getting at some of the inefficiencies that they have, um, both sort of, you know, things that are caused by the federal government and sort of inefficient procurement rules and, you know, restrictions on the federal public housing subsidies, um, you know, things at the state level, getting access to design build and other, um, you know, sort of new procurement methods that can save time and money, um, but also sort of internally within NYCHA, sort of getting at ways to sort of improve their operations, um, getting ways of improving the way that they do capital management, um, and also sort of t starting to take advantage of some of their assets, which is, you know, includes both sort of the buildings themselves, but also the land and the development rights that are underneath them. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of using that to do more infill development, to sell air rights, to do some of the, you know, phased redevelopment, which itself wasn't in the NYCHA plan, the next-gen plan, but was sort of contemplated within sort of the realm of their infill. Um, and also start make, taking advantage of new federal programs like the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program um, and then Section 8 funding to convert some of their unfunded uh, units and other developments onto more stable funding streams. Um, so, so all key, those tools, key pieces of that. but All those tools yeah. were in place, mm -hmm. but there wasn't necessarily the political will or the political capital to be able to implement them. Mm -hmm. um, or to... Or to do them to the extent that might be necessary. That's I mean, exactly you can't. right. I yes. think the plan was a good one. It identified the right root causes, as you said, Sean, and also had the right mix of solutions. Now we need to next-gen 2.0 <laughs> because now we see the problems actually much more dire than we thought. And I think from my perspective, you know, NYCHA's management for all its challenges was really trying to push in these directions um, and was not getting the support it needed. And the recent scandals, I think, have now, um, you know, reawakened both the state and city leadership to say, okay, like, we need to move here on some of these areas, like the rental assistance demonstration program. I think where we still need to see some action and some kind of realignment of thinking, if you will, is with labor, NYCHA's workforce, um, and also the tenants, right? Um, a lot of the proposals to do development on NYCHA land um, or, and to, you know, 
move forward with some of what Sean calls infill, which would be important, you know, important for developing housing in the city, important for generating revenues for NYCHA, important for improving the housing stock of tenants who are in adjacent buildings, right, have met with tremendous resistance from tenants. Um, who, you know, feel like they have something to lose. The benefits have not, you know, have not been sufficient to get them to, to be accepting and then to allow the politicos in the area to say, yes, we need to do this. This needs to happen. It's, it's a viable solution. And then on labor, um, you know, they have tried. They have tried to renegotiate some of these work rules. There's a lot about why doesn't the work get done in NYCHA, Right. Someone has a complaint, they file a work ticket, they wait for someone to come do the repairs. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, they can only schedule the work between 9 to 5. When people are at work, they can't get it done. But there's a whole, ho- I mean, that's just scratching the surface, right? There's a whole host of reasons um, dealing with the labor contracts and the work rules and the compensation and how that's structured that just generates so much inefficiency, particularly relative to the landlord, say, of a rent-stabilized building. So the tenants and, you know, labor, they've also got to come to the table now, I think, with the others to start saying, hey, we need a holistic solution. Everybody's got to be part of it. Let's have the conversation and realize that we all have the same interest, which is to preserve these units to the best extent possible. Um, and we touched on when we did have now former, at the time, she was the sitting chair and CEO right. of Nitra Shola Latoya. We had her on the podcast. We talked about some of these things. She expressed some of the, you know, she again, she was obviously being diplomatic and she she has to be but she expressed some frustrations around some of these things we're discussing um and also at the time very interestingly talked about some federal regulations they wanted to see ease and and so there's such a wide variety of things here that would and and that's why the next gen plan is so vast i mean there's so many factors that would help NYCHA move forward but they need to be accelerated some of them need to be rethought so let's Let's dig in. You've you've gotten at both of you have gotten at a little bit some of these recommendations that CBC is offering in, you know, even in the title of your report, calling it transforming NYCHA to address its capital needs. Um, so let's let's dig into these. And you have basically four big buckets of strategies, recommendations. So do you want to sort of just list those four areas and then we can go into some of the specifics? Sure. So the first recommendation is more of a philosophical approach, is that NYCHA needs to be fully integrated into the city's affordable housing strategy. Um, you know, NYCHA is the largest affordable housing provider in the city. It's the largest affordable housing provider in the country. Um, and we need to start thinking of it as a source of affordable housing as part of the city's overall strategy. Um, the second is that NYCHA needs to transition to being an affordable housing steward um, that directly manages fewer buildings, but sort of oversees and protects the affordability of these units for the long term, encompassing a broad range of different affordable housing programs and not just traditional public housing. Um, the third is that they need to leverage their underutilized land assets and the development rights that are associated with them, um, and they can tap into those to help pay for repairs and to facilitate some of the redevelopment of the most um, uh, development's most in need of capital repairs. And the last one is that they need to improve both their operations and the way they do construction management, which don't necessarily involve more money, but making better use of the money and the resources and the people that they have now. Um, we dig into each of Sure. Them. So, I mean, just let's, let's take them each one at a time. The fully integrating NYCHA into the affordable housing strategy, 
in looking at the report, I would say is not just a philosophical one, right? Yeah. I mean, it is about resources yes. and, and how they're dedicated. And this is, you know, it also makes me think of how advocates around reducing homelessness have said, you know, the city isn't really taking into, wasn't and has made some adjustments, uh, you know, taking into account transitioning people out of homelessness and into their affordable housing plan. But anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but on NYCHA, um, what does it mean to more fully integrate it into the affordable housing plan? So I think for a long time, there's sort of been two silos. There's you know, the affordable housing that's sort of run and managed by HPD, um, the, housing, the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, and then there's been NYCHA. And we sort of see this both, we saw it in the, uh, Mayor Bloomberg's housing plan and the same thing with Mayor de Blasio's housing plan is that there are a system of um, tools and resources and programs designed to address the city's affordable housing shortage. And then there's NYCHA. So even like under the current administration where they've significantly increased the amount of capital and operating support going to NYCHA, it's coming separate from the resources that are going into um, fulfilling the mayor's goal of building or preserving 300,000 units of affordable housing. Um, and we, we realize that there's really no distinction. There's no practical distinction between affordable housing units that are in the control of NYCHA and affordable housing units are being built or preserved through the resources towards the mayor's housing plan. Um, and that by bringing NYCHA sort of into that broader um, holistic view of what the housing landscape is in New York City, that means that NYCHA then has to compete for the same number of resources, the same amount of resources as other housing projects uh, throughout the city. So that means both sort of having more capital money. So I think one of the recommendations that we have is that a third of the city's capital commitments for housing go towards NYCHA, which is sort of roughly in line with its share of the you know, sort of existing supply of affordable housing in the city. Um, but that also means that NYCHA needs to get more access to things like tax exempt bonds, low-income housing tax credits, um, and some of the city's loan programs that now go primarily towards private affordable housing development or preservation. Um, because NYCHA needs a lot of those resources, too, for a lot of its capital work, particularly projects that are going through conversions under the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, which I'll get more into in a second, um, and its Section 8 programs, because those programs rely on the same federal housing subsidies that go towards the housing plan now. Um, so they're sort of in competition now between those two. Sort of there's a competing goal of preserving NYCHA and you know, meeting you know, his goal of building and preserving 300,000 affordable units. And there really shouldn't be a distinction between those two because they meet the same ends. Interesting. And, you know, this always made a lot of sense to me um, for, two, you know, many reasons. But two um, that we should talk about is, you know, one, you know, the, the, the housing plan, this one, the prior one, most of it goes to preserving units, not mm -hmm. creating new ones, right? So once you understand that, then you, you start, you think about it a little differently. And second... I mean, the, one of the other criticisms, in addition to what Ben said about um, the, those from the homeless advocates, is that the housing plan is not doing enough to do, you know, to do the deeply affordable units, right? And so the mayor has responded to that by increasing the subsidy to do more for the lower end, uh, lower AMIs. Um, but here we are with NYCHA, right? And NYCHA is effectively serving that population. Mm -hmm. So it is a solution that makes a lot of sense and, and is, I think, a, a good way to think about it. Um, so on, on the second point, right, this, this is sort of more of a philosophical approach in terms of how, how you think of NYCHA and what NYCHA does. And that's to say, 
NYCHA's just a landlord and saying, well, step back, NYCHA's more than that. NYCHA is really a, a steward, and there will be some units that it preserves and maintains and runs as a landlord, and others that it um, sort of maintains the affordability of through different mechanisms. Um, so I think there are the, – the, the affordable housing landscape in the city looks a lot different today in 2018 than it did in the 1950s and 1960s when a lot of these uh, – the original night developments were first built, both in terms of the subsidies that are underlying it and sort of the operating models of um, how these buildings are supposed to sustain themselves. Um, so I think one of the recommendations we have is if NYCHA transitions to an affordable housing steward rather than sort of a landlord of public housing um, – it unlocks a lot more resources, both to sort of renovate the buildings that now have you know, $32 billion in capital needs, uh, but also sort of make them run more efficiently. So there are a number of different options for how NYCHA can go about doing this. Um, the first one is to maximize what they call PACT, or Permanent Affordability Commitment Together, which is to maximize the use of the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program and the Section 8 conversions. Um, so under the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, um, which is a new federal program that was launched in 2012, um, public housing authorities are allowed to essentially change the funding stream for public housing from the traditional public housing operating capital subsidies to a new subsidy under Section 8. So it's a subsidy that's tied to the unit, but frees them from a lot of the restrictions that come on public housing. So that means that they can go out and do public-private partnerships um, to do the construction and the management. Um, they can go out and they can get debt from the private capital markets. They can use tax-exempt bonds. They can use tax credits. All those tools that are available to nonprofit and for-profit affordable housing developers are now available for public housing as well. So it allows them to raise more money for repairs, to leverage public money, uh, or to leverage private money using public dollars, and then also to sort of reform management and put management on a better footing going forward. Um, Knight has been doing this by... Um, sort of partnering with private um, developers and private property managers. So the NYCHA actually retains ownership of the land. They retain control over the tenant selection process. And then their private partners will manage the construction process and then the day-to-day -day operations of the buildings once the renovations are complete. Um, so they've completed one now, um, or have nearly completed one at the Ocean Bay development in Far Rockaway, Queens. Um, and by all accounts, it's been a tremendous success. A lot of praise for that, yeah. um, including from the including tenants. From the tenants, that the you know the tenants have realized that you know if they managed to com you know completely comprehensively renovate the project from you know uh, you know the grounds, the roofs, the interiors. They've done it quickly. No one was displaced, even temporarily, um, and it's a you know it's a much more pleasant place to live. Right. And the tenants recognize that you know. It didn't come with some of the fears of privatization originally floated when these proposals were first put out. Um, so that, you know, they had the same, you know, the same rights um, that they did before. You know, no one is displaced, and they have you know as good living conditions as almost anyone in New York City. Um, so NYCHA needs to sort of recommend that NYCHA really push forward more, and you know the city needs to put in the resources to make those deals feasible going forward. And you estimate um, in your second recommendation that these steps would address another $2.6 billion in capital needs. And um, the first one we discussed, about a billion. So that gets you know gets you $3.5 billion towards the, the capital needs in these first two strategies. Um, 
Well, there's a second part to this well, too, right? Yeah. Okay, you're getting there. No, no, sorry. go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. And the, the second piece of this is that NHLs need to start reducing the size of its portfolio. So there are a number of units, particularly those small developments we mentioned before, the ones that are picked up through tax foreclosures over the years, um, that have the highest needs and are extremely inefficient for nitrogen. You know, there's, there's small walk-up buildings throughout the city. Um, you know, it's inefficient for you know, a landlord of nitrogen size and scale to actually sort of go out and manage, you know, 40-unit walk-up buildings. Um, that people might not even realize. Many people listening yeah. to this or who haven't looked at your report mm -hmm. might not even realize that NYCHA has yeah. these right. in their yeah. portfolio. And the city has resources and tools and programs to sort of dispose of now sort of buildings that come in through tax foreclosure, um, but also buildings that, you know, the city would otherwise retake themselves, transfer them to qualified nonprofit for-profit owners, do repair work, and protect affordability. So they've been doing this since the Koch administration. Uh, the tools are there, and now you can sort of take advantage of those existing programs to sort of, you know, move off some of these most smallest, most inefficient buildings and put them on a better footing going forward. Right, and um, they were talking about a small number of units overall in terms mm -hmm. of the portfolio, yeah. right? Yeah. And also recognizing the fact that the, most of these units were in terrible shape when they were dumped on NYCHA, and NYCHA was expected to sort of spin them into gold, um, and the resources weren't there to do that. So as Sean said, lots of tools are available through HPD to ensure that these buildings can get repaired and that can, they, rem mm -hmm. they can remain affordable. Yeah. And as you said, these are, these are the types of things that HPD is, HPD is doing all the time. Yep. I mean, we see the mayor making announcements with his housing officials. They relate to all these things that you're talking about here. It's just a matter of using them, using these strategies mm -hmm. and these tactics, either starting to use some of them for NYCHA or speeding up the pace and the resources involved. Yeah. Okay, number three? Number three is that NYCHA needs to do, um, better leverage underutilized land assets. So one of... Uh, this might be the most controversial yes. of, of right. the four buckets, but yes. yeah, um, we've talked about it quite a bit on this yeah. podcast. But go ahead. The original design choices when they designed most of these NYCHA developments is that they designed them as sort of tower-in-the-park developments so that they're built as you know, sort of large towers set back from the street um, to maximize light and air and sort of what are, you know... Campuses. Can, they're campuses. They're sort of like, they've been called super blocks. So they're mm -hmm. sort of, you know, large blocks of the city that were taken off the street grid and, you know, sort of build these towers in sort of a park-like setting. Um, as a result of that, it also means that most NYCHA developments are now underbuilt relative to what you could build there today under the city's existing zoning code and regulations, um, which means that NYCHA has the ability to either sell those development rights either to their neighbors or elsewhere in the city or to do development on the NYCHA campuses themselves without having to go through a rezoning um, or a, you know, sort of public disposition process. So they can do those projects, what's called as of right. Um, and one of the proposals in Next Generation NYCHA was to do both sort of um, market rate mixed income development on NYCHA land and 100% affordable development as well. Um, but the pace of that has been very slow. Um, so originally they contemplated doing both sort of mixed income and 100% affordable, and the mix is, has gone much more towards the 100% affordable rather than the mixed income. And there's, a, again, sort of an underlying tension. The 100% affordable projects count towards the mayor's affordable housing goals and start addressing this, you know, the idea that we have an affordable housing shortage in the city. But the mixed income projects were intended to help also not only create affordable housing within them, because they're fit, you know, 50% market, 50% affordable, um, but also raise money for NYCHA itself. Revenue, yeah. Um, and, and that's it, a key strategy of the mayor's affordable housing plan. It's both of those buckets as well, right? right. You know, just uh, 
outside of NYCHA. And the recommendation that we have is that they need to both accelerate the pace of doing those infill developments and start doing more of the market rate and mixed income and even sort of increase the share market rate because it's sort of it's not a linear relationship between the um, the number of affordable units and the money that it raises. So if, even going from a 50-50 development, so we're 50% affordable, 50% market rate, to doing something like 70% market rate and 30% affordable generates significantly more money up front for NYCHA to do repair work, both sort of at the development itself and throughout the system. And um, can bring more units online overall yes. in the single project. Yes. And there's an air rights element of mm-hmm. this? Explain so, that. So the other option is sort of rather than sort of doing development on the campus itself, NYCHA could then sort of create a market for those development rights and sell them either sort of to you know, immediate, you know, the immediate neighbors sort of adjacent to the campus itself, or that the city could create um, a district in which NYCHA could sell those air rights over a broader area, which creates a broader market and which increases the price. And the city has done this before lots of times um, to help support property owners. So they most recently did it with the rezoning of East Midtown, which allows the landmarks in that neighborhood like St. Patrick's and Central Synagogue and Grand Central Terminal itself um, to sell those air rights to office developers. They've done it before for Broadway theater owners. They did it for properties under the High Line. Um, and they did it for the, the recent purchasers of, the, of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village as part of that preservation deal as well. So those, again, the precedent is there and the tools are there. It's just that you know, there sort of needs to be the political will and the political implementation of you know, tools that are already in place and available. Okay, let's uh, in our last few minutes here. Let's let's hit your fourth large sort of strategy, mm-hmm. uh, and then I, you know, I want to ask you also. We'll, we'll get to the details of this, but you know, what the timeline, you know, in your estimation, sort of needs to be for for moving on some of this stuff. But go ahead. So the last bucket is improving operations and construction management. Again, this is sort of like an idea that NYCHA needs both money and better management. This is that management piece of it. Um, so getting at sort of these issues that Maria raised before of, um, you know, looking at labor and labor reforms and you know, what labor needs to bring to the table. So there are a bunch of different th- components within that. We've identified just a few of them. That's not all of them. This is sort of a, a, you know, a vast issue that needs to be addressed. Um, so the first is sort of the decentralized property management and look at who's accountable for the conditions at developments on a day-to-day basis. So currently, the way the NYCHA is staffed they have caretakers at the development, but they're not necessarily given the same responsibilities and held to the same levels of accountability as, say, a private development would be. So that means, you know, sort of giving both property managers um, the ability to set budgets and staffing levels and bring on resources that they need to hold both their own workforce, sort of the caretakers and the maintenance workers and the skill trades at those developments accountable, but also sort of for then the supervisors at the NYCHA uh, central offices and borough offices to hold property managers accountable. And that, that relationship doesn't exist today. Um, they also need to sort of look at sort of the work schedules and job responsibilities for its existing workforces. So as Maria mentioned, right now NYCHA only is allowed to do work at you know, sort of the base rates of pay between 8.30 and 4 o'clock, which is great when you had, you know, people at home, you know, during work hours, but now NYCHA residents work, you know, it's hard to schedule repairs around when people are actually going to be home, and NYCHA won't go in and do repairs unless someone is actually at home to you know, let the, right. the worker in. Um, so you need to sort of change both the schedules and the rates of pay around those schedules um, to mirror sort of what property, property, private property managers 
do um, to actually sort of get that work done faster at a reasonable cost. And someone's also changing the job responsibilities so that, you know, right now, say if someone has a, a hole in their ceiling from a leaky pipe, to get that fixed, they first need a, a maintenance worker to come in and say, yeah, you have a hole in your ceiling. He, that maintenance worker then will go and schedule work tickets for skilled trades to come in. First, you need a plumber to come in and fix the leak. You then need a plasterer to come in and fix the hole. Then you need a painter to come in and repaint the ceiling. And they all have to come separately. And they all have, you know, hundreds of other work tickets that they need to get to first. And there's a backlog on each of them. Um, so that's why it takes so long for night to repairs. That it, you know, it takes four different people all with a backlog, all getting high rates of overtime to come in and do that work. So by addressing some of the job responsibilities and work assignments and work schedules, you can sort of have that done more productively, you know, at a reasonable cost and get work done quicker. Um, the other way they can do that is sort of start increasing the use of private maintenance contracts. And they're starting to do some with boil repairs. They're doing it with lead inspections now um, where they're bringing in private workers to supplement NYCHA workers um, sort of as sort of, you know, extraordinary needs arises in the case of the lead inspections, or even just to sort of routine um, maintenance of things like boilers, sort of the new money that's going in for boiler replacement. They're also bringing in some private technicians to do that work, to do the ongoing maintenance. And that both frees up NYCHA's you know, current workforce to do the work that they need to do within their daily work shifts, and also allows NYCHA to sort of scale up and scale down as needs arise. So, and that's sort of what private property managers do. That's what a lot of other sort of best-in-class public housing authorities also do. Um, and NYCHA is going to sort of use that to sort of supplement its existing workforce, existing budget, and sort of increase productivity. Um, and the last piece is to do design, builds, and construction management. So that's sort of on the federal side. You know, they need some relief. NYCHA needs some relief from HUD uh, to give them more flexibility in how they sort of can do procurement of the federal capital dollars that still make up the bulk of their capital plan. Um, but on the state side, the state also, the state legislature um, and the governor need to give authorization to NYCHA to use things like design build and other sort of more innovative uh, construction management and procurement methods that will, you know, speed up the procurement process and do more with the money that they have. Um, and we should say, you know, the governor had indicated there would be a state monitor, but then the city entered this consent decree with the federal authorities, so the governor has backed off on that state involvement, and now we're basically, the city committed a, a billion more dollars uh, for NYCHA as part of that consent decree, and there's going to be a federal monitor who comes in and oversees the spending of some of that money and some other things. There's ongoing investigations around the lead, and so, um, you know, any of these programs, some of them already existing, other things they might try that you're saying to do or accelerate, as you're saying, you know, also come into this other context of, of no, recent that's developments. that's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that was, um, that stuck out to me when you read the, the federal consent decree is they specifically identify that NYCHA needs relief from certain regulations, but that also there needs to be a more critical review about how all of this is done and the monitor will be empowered to rec make recommendations or make the changes directly to get this stuff done more cost-effectively. So and even on, aside from that, when we yeah. had Comptroller Scott Stringer on with us, you know, he talked about his push that there should be a total change, you know, or a large change in the structure of management in NYCHA, and maybe that's something that will be looked at TBD, but it, you know, it's part of this conversation around 
where are the inefficiencies, who's really in charge, um, and, and making some of these decisions faster, smarter, better, uh, and so on. So in total, your recommendations help get NYCHA on stronger footing, you estimate? I mean, what's that picture look like? Let's say the city adopts the CBC report. So let's reiterate. Let's fill the gap, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was $32 billion need. Yes. Capital plan, including the new funding from the city and state, total of how much in funding? So NYCHA's plan right now, including the money coming in under the consent decree and including sort of what they plan to do through RAD and Section 8 conversions gets them about $8 billion. $8 billion. And, and CBC's recommendations add CBC's another? CBC's adds another $7 billion. Fifteen. That me 15. <laughs> yes. A whopping $15 okay. million. Yeah. So that's 15 out of 32. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that you're not going to get all the way there, even you know, barring even more radical changes than what we've proposed. Um, Which, given political, as you, you know, mm-hmm. that's been a theme running here, is here's the things to do, but there's always political questions. So even given political considerations, we'll be realists. We're very unlikely to even get there. But this is mm-hmm. modeling... Mm-hmm. Combined with existing resources, which have been upped, gets you about halfway to the estimated need. I, I would like to put that in the context in the sense of previously, if you compared funding to the need, I was just going the there. gap yeah. was much, see, we're gonna, right. you know, we got our yeah, yeah. <laughs> The gap yeah. was much greater, right? The, if, if they could actually get things in gear and implement everything at CBC, you would see a dramatic improvement in quality of life for so many families, right? For so many tenants. Um, and, and that's what we really have to think about. And then the conversation still needs to happen about, okay, and what's the plan for the rest of the portfolio? Yeah. Right, I mean, again, this is, as Maria perfectly put it, you know, this would get things into a better place than they have been, significantly improved. This is also talking about the short-term need, and then sometimes when things don't get addressed in the short term, they become, you know, they get pushed into the long-term need or whatever the, the reshuffling of some of it is. But the point being that we're in an emergency situation and the, and the plans to address it need to sort of reflect that. I think we'll leave it there. Yes, sir. Um, we've got a lot more on NYCHA, obviously, to discuss as things unfold. This won't be the last conversation we have on NYCHA, and obviously there's many other conversations in public policy around the city, state, and even on the federal level happening related to NYCHA. Uh, but folks should uh, take a look at Sean and CBC's report. And, Sean, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.